Okay, good to see everybody uh, today. Glorious day that the Lord has made for us. Let's pray together, ask God to bless our time, and uh, we will begin. Okay, let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, we thank you again for your many mercies, Lord, and, and your grace. And Lord, thank you so much for waking us up today, Lord, for uh, giving us life and breath and all things freely to enjoy, Lord. Uh, truly, Father, we are so lavished by your grace Lord, help us not to be blind to, to the many blessings that we receive, Lord, even from your common grace, Lord, in creation and, um, Lord, in our lives. Father, we just thank you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the church. Lord, we pray that um, our church would be a place, Father, where uh, your word is central and where your son is supreme and, and, Father, where your glory dwells. So we pray for your help, God. Please bless our church, Lord. Bless your people, uh, just really give us a heart to love you and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys. Well, so we uh, we are almost at the point, Lord willing, uh, next time that we tackle biblical theology, maybe next week, uh, maybe the week after that, I think for sure by then, uh, we're actually going to get to the book of Genesis and begin talking about uh, finally talking about biblical theology, <laughs> actually doing biblical theology. We're going to actually go to Genesis and look at the, um, look at the, the protology of the Bible, which protology is a, is a term again, that really has come to have deep significance for me because, um, you know, uh, God says in Isaiah, I think it's, oh boy, I think it's Isaiah 45 somewhere. Uh, God says, you know, I declare the end things from the beginning. And I, and I think that's more than just God saying, I can tell the future. Uh, I think that's uh, also just saying that the way that the Bible is structured is that, in fact, the protology of the Bible, which is the study of the first things of the Bible, the first opening chapters of Genesis, um, uh, and then the eschatology of the Bible, the last things of the Bible, are really, in, they really inform one another. Uh, and so uh, really looking forward to uh, protology. Protology is so massive uh, for our theology of Scripture. I mean, it really, what you come away thinking about protology, in one way we can actually say that's going to affect your entire interpretation of the Bible what you make of the opening chapters of Genesis. It really, really, really affects everything. Uh, we'll hopefully look into that. Uh, but we've been looking at the redemptive historical hermeneutic. And the way that we've done that so far is that we've looked at what the Bible has to say uh, in terms, more than anything, about the gospel. And the fact that the gospel is, as we saw sort of an intertestamental reality, that it's not simply a New Testament idea, even though the word gospel or good news is something that we find in the New Testament, the idea of the gospel is not something that begins in the New Testament. It's something that begins in the Old Testament. And so um, uh, an intertestamental gospel is what we saw from uh, some really critical passages that we've been looking at in several weeks. What are some of those passages? Can you guys name some of the passages that we've looked at so far? There, I'm thinking of four in particular. Can you think of where we've been, what we've studied? I'll give you a hint. It's, it's, uh, several of them are verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1, 1 through 4. Any others? Romans. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Any others? 
What's it? I hear mumbling, but I don't hear any. Oh. <laughs> what is it? Hebrews ten twenty six. Hebrews ten twenty six. Uh, well, I'm thinking of the main text that we took time to exposit. So the other one I'm thinking about is First uh, Corinthians 15, because we looked at that, and that was a big one because there, remember, uh, the Apostle Paul was saying that um, that the gospel of the first things, the gospel of preeminence, he said, is the gospel that was according to the scriptures. And what was it that was according to the scriptures, according to, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4? Well, what, what it was, it was the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection, which is just amazing because he's saying death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel according to the scriptures. And remember, uh, we concluded that for the apostle Paul to say that, the only scriptures he's talking about is the Old Testament, and so what Paul is saying is that in the Old Testament, you have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus uh, emerging. So that's really a remarkable uh, proof text, I think, for uh, not only redemptive historical hermeneutics, but for an intertestamental uh, gospel, a gospel that crosses covenantal lines and you know, spans the covenantal divide. Uh, so very, very important there. Um, but as part of the redemptive historical hermeneutic and going forward, we're saying this is the way that we're going to interpret Scripture, is that we interpret Scripture, yes, from an exegetical uh, perspective, right? So there's no question that part of our interpretation, right? So interpretation is, is, has to include the following things. It has to include grammar, Right, uh, it has to include exegesis, and some of these ideas are gonna uh, are gonna overlap. Right, grammar, exegesis. It's gonna include history. Now, remember that in a grammatical historical interpretation of the of the Bible, when you say history, you're mainly referring to what is known as background uh, background information of the Bible. And so what is the background information of the Bible? Well, principally, it is three things. It is author, it is audience, right? And it is what I like to call argument, right? Uh, the argument of the letter, argument, that's right, something like that. So basically, in a grammatical historical approach, what we're looking at is uh, the situation that stands behind a book of the Bible, let's say Romans. Who's the author of Romans? Who's the audience of the book of Romans? And what is the principal argument of the book of Romans? So in understanding the author and understanding the audience, so what theologians, theologians call the Sitzumleben, right? The, the German for situation. What is the situation in Rome? What's going on? Why is Paul writing? What is Paul's situation? Where is he writing from? Why is he writing? You see what I'm saying? So that has to do with a grammatical historical approach to, to, to hermeneutics. But we also need to have a redemptive, right? Redemptive, and then if I could put a slash, redemptive historical approach to scripture. Redemptive historical approach. Now, this term history is not synonymous with this term history. In a redemptive historical approach, what we're talking about in terms of this history 
is how the how the, 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 the history of special revelation, namely the Bible, how that progresses and, ha- and how does that unfold through the centuries. So, in other words, how does the uh, history of the patriarchs, how does that inform your theology in the book of Genesis as to oppose the history of Noah, the history of, of the Exodus, the history of the prophets. Uh, as the history of scripture is unfolding how does this inform our hermeneutic? And that's what, and then the redemptive part, the redemptive part is really the part that deals with the gospel, uh, the intertestamental gospel that we talked about. So this is what's needed for a proper interpretation of scripture. So you need grammar, but you also have to have theology. You have to have a very basic theological um, approach to the Bible uh, Cornelius Van Til, for example, very uh, famous for saying that Trinitarian theology must inform our interpretation of Scripture everywhere. That's a quote from Van Til's uh, systematic theology. He's right. In other words, we, we come to the Scriptures not as a tabula rasa, <laughs> right? Not, not as a blank slate in some sort of scientific fashion where we set aside our Christian convictions and come to the Bible and pretend that we are objective in the matter. Now, we are Trinitarian Christians, and Trinitarian theology informs our interpretation of the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, That's just him highlighting one overarching reality that should inform our interpretation of Scripture at all times. Uh, We never pretend to be... Uh, Unitarians or Arians or modalists or or or, or polytheists or or atheists, right? Uh, so as to see uh, what it, who it is that the God of the Bible is. No, we know who He is. The Scripture expects us to interpret the Bible in the light of the true and living God, right? So these kind of presuppositions are necessary. So this is great, but this is really what I wanted to emphasize here because um, let's say we do a little protology. Okay, protology. And let's say that we're looking, just for example, we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, and we're looking at uh, Genesis 1, let's say, verses 26 through 27, just for instance. I think that's where the Bible says, you know, in the image of God, he created man. In the image of God, he created uh, them. You know, male and female, he created them, right? So this is the, the Imago Dei passage. So... When we do the grammatical work, the exegetical work, when we do the background of, of the, uh, the book of Genesis, what we can come away with is some very, very, very good information. Like, for example, when we do the grammatical exegesis of that book, then we, what we understand is something like, we can, we can come away looking at the book of Genesis and concluding something like, well, what that's saying there is that uh, male and female together uniquely uh, image or, or, or mirror the image of God. Uh, so there's some grammatical issues there that are very important. So, for example, grammatical. What is the what is the word in the Hebrew image? What is that word? What is the vocabulary word? What does that mean? What's the background of that word? That's all very good kind of encyclical information, right? We need to do all of that. Uh, we also need to check the background of the book of Genesis. Why is it important for Moses... When he revealed the book, of, or when he was given the book of Genesis, when he transmitted it and gave it to the Israelites, why is it important that the image of God passage um, sort of be part of the revelation? 
how, in light of the fact that he's giving it to the wilderness generation after his encounter with God at the bush and the giving of the law at Sinai, why is it that the Imago Dei uh, passage is important to the Israelites? What are the Israelites going through where the image of God language will land on them with a particular relevance based on their situation, based on their Zitzenleben? That's all very important information, right? And we can do a great deal of study, and we can do a great deal of um, we can do a great deal of you know theology up to that point. But a Christocentric hermeneutic insists that this passage, I would say, like any other passage of Scripture, does not reach its fullest implications until it is uh, brought into the person of Christ. So what you find is that the image of God language has a Christocentric purpose, right? I think for the first time that I ever heard this, maybe the first time you'll hear it now, I was studying Anthony Hokema's book on um, salvation called Saved by Grace, a book I recommend for all of you. No, no, it's not Saved by Grace. It's, it's volume two. It's um, Created in God's Image by Anthony Hokema. He's got three. It's called... Uh, Created in God's image, saved by grace, and then the Bible in the future. It's kind of like a trilogy. Very, very good. I, I recommend you get that. But in there, what Anthony Hokema says is that man was created in the image of God because of Jesus Christ. That's a blanketed statement, you know. But his logic is this, that man had to be created in such a way that his nature... Man's nature, what man is, as opposed, let's say, to the nature of a beast, a cattle, a, a dog, a, a bird, right? The nature of a human being is such that Jesus can assume the nature of man in order to have the capacity to reflect the image of God. And so what happens in Scripture is that you find texts where the image of God language in the Bible appears for a little while, like in the book of Genesis, and then it disappears. Like, it's gone. It doesn't appear anywhere uh, after a certain point in Genesis. It just kind of vanishes away. It's like, wow. But then, in the New Testament, the image of God language reemerges on the scene. And it reemerges in a very distinct way. Like, for example, and you know where I'm going with this, but it's not just that, um, you know, it, it, it's not just that man is in the image of God. Um, but now we're giving kind of a more intense interpretation of the image of God. For example, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, talking about people being blind to the gospel, it says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now watch this. Who is in the image of God. Is that correct? Is that correct? No. No, it's not. Why not, Pastor Chris? You said in the image of God. Correct. What does it say? He is the image of God. So what Adam and Eve ultimately were reflecting was not the image of God in just a general sense, 
but also, ultimately, the image of Jesus Christ. So this is how protology, right, has to be informed by a Christocentric hermeneutic so that we, we are expected now, as New Covenant believers, we are expected now that we know, based on 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, or 4.5, whatever it is, 4.4, 4, we are expected to understand what was the whole image of God thing all about? <laughs> We're not to turn a blind eye to the Christocentric implications of Genesis 1, 26 to 27. What we have now is what the apostles encountered when they began to read the Old Testament from a distinctly messianic perspective and all of a sudden they see that in fact the book of Genesis was written with a messianic uh, with a messianic hermeneutic. Any questions? That's just an example. That's just one. Yes, sir? Um, my mind is kind of slow. But um, like the, as far as the, the, the nation of Israel being the audience, right? Yes. talking about in the image, made in the image, how would that impact them? Did it have to do with them being in slavery or whatever and how the image of God very good very good question I think the short answer to that without doing a whole full scale theology of how does the image of God relate to the Israelites right based on what we see theologically in the Old Testament is that what the image of God served is that it served to tell Israel who they were and who they were intended to be the reason why is because part of being uh, in the image of God is that Adam and Eve were commissioned to be fruitful and to multiply. Well, this is what's really interesting. This is where biblical theology is really helpful. That phrase, be fruitful and multiply, is found again and again in the book of Genesis, and it's found in places that speak of, like, uh, physical progeny, in other words, physical descendants. So Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply, Right? But here's what's amazing, is that in the eschatology of the prophets, by the time you get to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there's language there, be fruitful and multiply. God will multiply you. He will flourish you in the land. That same, all that same Hebrew vocabulary is used, but it's used with a much more redemptive historical meaning. Ultimately meaning that it's only through the redemption that Yahweh provides, and we would say now through Christ, that man will actually assume his proper place in the universe as an image bearer that is fruitful and will multiply, that will take dominion of the earth, that will take dominion of creation. See what I'm saying? All this language. So that's just a little bit of... So I think by the time uh, the law was given to Israel at Sinai and they read the language of be fruitful and multiply... They understood that their place in life was not to be under the tyranny of paganism. That they, God did not create them for the purpose that they would serve false idols, but they themselves are image bearers of God. To be an image bearer of God, uh, like Anthony Hokema has said, it's a verb, not a noun. It's an action, not just uh, a static identity, right? In other words, image bearing is a thing that we do, right? It's, it's that we reflect 
the glory of God. And certainly when you look throughout uh, the eschatology of the prophets, you see that Israel is called to spread the image of God, to spread the glory of God throughout all the world, throughout all the nations. So uh, that's just a little bit of the theology, I think, that emerges from the image of God. Like that's a big one. The image of God, and we'll tackle it maybe a little bit more in depth. But just giving you a little example that we can do image of God theology, but it doesn't really reach its ultimate goal until we get to the Christ-centeredness of the image of God. Same thing with everything. Uh, like one thing that I'm really, you know, it's kind of my pet peeve right now. So, you know, if you hear a lot of this, it's be- that's why. Is because the days of creation, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, on the seventh, the Sabbath. Those days were not given to us to refute evolution. Those days, in fact, they, the, 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 the authors of the Bible, they identify the days of creation as having a redemptive historical purpose. So that what we're supposed to conclude and what Israel was supposed to conclude is that the God that created us is the God that has the power to redeem us. And that's why Isaiah... He will quote, um, I think it's day three um, and day four, where he quotes what, ha- what God's sovereignty over the, 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 the life of the sea, the great sea monsters, um, also God's sovereignty over the, the firmament and the sky, the stars. The prophets use the days of creation to prove that it is Yahweh the creator of the universe who is Yahweh the redeemer of his people. So that to me is just glorious. You know what I mean? Because, and, and I would say that's the reason why God gave the days of creation how he did. Do they refute evolution? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But is that the original intent of the author? I would say no. Any questions on that? I know that's kind of a controversial isn't that really controversial, right? I don't have a question. I just have a comment. Yes, sir. Um, or yeah. comments are welcome. Uh, yeah, well. you know, it's, uh, as you were talking about that, my mind went to, uh, uh, speaking of Christ and of human duty, because I went to a Psalm 36, 9, where it says, for, for with you is a path of life. Mm. And in your life, we see life. Mm. Take that to, to uh, gospel down one. He's the light of the world. And then you go back to Genesis, and you go back to the redemption of Fifth, and it was taken to redemption in the Gospel of John, which is where you're going, which is great, which is the theology of creation. Absolutely. I mean, let's take let's take another day of creation, right? Uh, day two, right, where he says, uh, let there be light, right? Or is that day one? It shows you how good I am. But, yeah, so on day one, right. And then he, I think that's right, and then he separates the darkness from the light, right? Well, where does light and darkness where, where is the separation of light and darkness again in the Bible that you can think of? John? <laughs> you squeak that out. <laughs> Acts? But I might not be thinking of the same thing, but maybe not the same wording. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of John, but what you find is that, like, in, in the Bible, like, in the prophets and and stuff like that, you know, you find uh, themes of light and darkness, light and darkness. Um, when, what, what, was, what was happening before the light came? Genesis 1. What was it? Tohu Bavohu, the world was formless and void. 
And as a matter of fact, you find that exact terminology, right? Keith's got some Hebrew going on now. I like that. You find that. <laughs> yeah. So you find that same terminology in, in the prophets, that, that Israel, when it goes into captivity, let's say into Babylon, they're going to go back to a state of tohu bavohu, chaos and void, right? See, see, see how the, the prophets use the Genesis theology, the protology of the Bible? They use it to substantiate what God is doing redemptively to, with the people of God, and it doesn't reach its climax, not in Babylon. It reaches its climax in Christ, John chapter 1, right? That um, the darkness could not overcome the light, right? In Genesis chapter, that's just one possible interpretation of that passage. I think that's the right one, but anyway. Um, any questions, comments? Sure. No, no dumb questions, by the way. Anything is fair game here. Yes, ma'am. Okay, well, when you were saying about light and darkness, I'm thinking about, I think it's in Corinthians, which is about not being unable or the principle of the kingdom, right? Kingdom ethics is now an ethic of light and darkness. And then also where it says um, men love their sins, you know, so now the concept of the creation, mm-hmm. those concepts of light and darkness have all of a sudden assumed an ethical meaning. Um. So we go from a biological meaning to an ethical meaning. <laughs> Remarkable. That's why um, David Murray in his book, Jesus on Every Page, he says creation um, s- creation serves the purpose of the kingdom so that the creation becomes the occasion of the parables of the Lord. Think about how many parables Jesus uses in terms of creation. A lot of his parables incorporate creation. The birds, the lilies, the mountains, the hills. You know, I mean, you can just think of the fig tree. You know, a lot of times Christ is using creation as metaphors for the kingdom of God. So, um, anything else? Anything else? That's just a little bit of why it's important to use a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Um, uh, But where does the Bible... Where does the Bible really teach that we ought to interpret the Bible Christocentrically? So I wanted to spend a little time at Luke 24. So let's go there because that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of a principal passage. And for some people, it's it's a passage that that is to be debated. Um, I've actually heard some dispensational theologians attempt to say that, well, this is not some sort of exhaustive hermeneutic. This is just Jesus making a simple analogy to what's going on in the Old Testament. I don't, you know, I don't take that line of thought only because I don't think the rest of Scripture allows for that. I, I actually do believe Jesus here is giving the church a very, very intentional guideline on how to interpret the Bible um, Christologically. So, of course, I'm thinking of Luke 24, uh, beginning in, ro- in, in beginning on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> beginning in verse twenty-five, which is the road to the to the Emmaus um, uh, passage, where it says, "O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken." So, so notice first he makes an all comprehensive statement, and there when he says all of the prophets, 
okay, so so is Jesus is 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 Jesus saying only that what he has in mind is the prophetic literature at that point when he says all of the prophets? What do you, how do you think he means that phrase at this at that verse all of the prophets? Right? Um, why did he say all of the Bible? Or all of the scriptures. Is there a difference? Not really. I mean, that's my suspicion, is that Jesus is just kind of summarizing. Uh, and in fact, uh, it was a customary Jewish custom to refer to all the Bible by simply referring to it as the writing of the prophets. Uh, that's, that's an acceptable way to refer to the Old Testament scriptures uh, as a whole. It's just the prophets. That's not uh, unreasonable, right? Because... The prophet's somebody that's declaring the word of God, and anybody that would be writing scripture would be writing yeah. the word of God. I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty simple. If we were to say, you know, the writing of the apostles, we would understand that as the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, we're not trying to exclude maybe some folks that maybe weren't identified as apostles. You know what I mean? Lower, uh, you know, uppercase A. You know. Um, so, yeah, that's right. That's right. Like, yes, sir. Through that point, maybe further, like verse forty-four, mm-hmm. even Jesus in the same context expands upon what he meant by the prophets when he says the law, of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, mm. and then he says, like you said, the scriptures in forty-five. So even in the same context, he's expanding upon what he originally stated. You know. Yeah. So it's all there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all there. I mean, who was the first prophet in the Bible according to the Bible? Who? Oh, man. You're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, according to Jesus, right, um, Abel was a prophet. So, I mean, you know, if you want to take it that way, I mean, just, you know, God was already speaking revelatory through Abel. I would even go back to Adam, who was a prophet, priest, and king, as it were, of the, of the first creation. Yeah, so, um, okay, so let's look at verse 26. It says, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? So uh, what does this remind you of there? Note the sufferings of Christ and then to enter his glory. In light of what we studied, what does that remind you of there? Anyone? You know, in light of the intertestamental gospel that we've been looking at, you know, uh, what... What's that? Dual the dual estates of Christ. That's right. Notice that Jesus also is asserting that what you are to find in the prophets is the theology concerning the dual estates of Christ, that he would come in his humility and that he would be risen to exaltation. So his, 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 his session in humility and his heavenly session in exaltation. And that according to Jesus, the prophets... The prophets already said this. And then again, that term, was it not necessary? So there, uh, that Greek word day, necessary, is um, what a lot of people would indicate as this is communicating what's known as divine necessity. Divine necessity, right? That, that when Jesus says it's necessary, he's not saying, like, if this thing is to work, <laughs> this is stuff I need to do, right? But what he's saying is that, in a sense, this is his divine obligation. He must fulfill this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what God had determined for him, 
right, in the decrees of God. Um, So he is to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory. Then, here we go, beginning with Moses. So he begins to enlarge whatever generalities he made there when he said all that was in the prophets. Now he begins to expand on that, beginning with Moses. Well, I mean, where does Moses begin? Genesis. So, so I mean, what Jesus is saying is beginning with protology. <laughs> if you want to get right to the very beginning of it, right? Beginning with the protology of the Bible, um, he says, and then he moves on to the prophets. So now he's making a harder distinction between what is written in the law and then what is written in the prophetic literature. And then he says he explain, and also the prophetic literature is also. Um, oftentimes encompassing, I think, the historical narratives of the kings, the Samuels, uh, the history, basically, of Scripture. Um, He says, he explained to them the things concerning himself, and then he says, in all of Scripture. So he kind of rounds it off, in all of Scripture. Um, Just remarkable. Uh, Jesus did this, not just here in Luke uh, 24, but he also does it in places like in John 5, where, and the reason why John 5 is kind of a um, an important one is because it's almost as if Jesus is throwing it in, in the midst of his consciousness, if you would, in the midst of a conversation with someone. Um, you know, he says this in, in, in John 5, 40, 46, he says, um, well, let's, let's begin verse 39, 539. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, that is the scriptures, that testify about me. And then verse uh, 46. But if you believe the Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, look at that. If you don't believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Wow, that's amazing, right? What he's saying there. <laughs> so there's an accountability that comes with the with the with the um with the Christology that you find in the Old Testament. It's just remarkable what Jesus is saying there. These Jews, these Pharisees, they should have detected enough messianic theology in the Old Testament so as to have sufficient cause to believe in Jesus. You know. Any Statements or questions on that, anybody? I mean, this whole chapter, back to Luke 24, is so important because, um, yes, it is, uh, it is then reiterated once again. Um, trying to find, trying to find the, the, the several things that are mentioned here. Okay, um, back to Luke 24, right? I just want to point out a couple of the features of this Christ-centered hermeneutic. Um, notice also that in beginning in, in, in verse uh, 44 of Luke 24, 24, 44, notice that uh, this is something, this is a hermeneutic that was present throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. It's not just that he revealed it at the end there at, during his resurrection, but he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So uh, these are the things that he had already been uh, expanding. And he says, that, 
And then that is the connection there. All things which are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So if there was ever any question at the beginning of verses 26, 27, 25, 26, 27, what Jesus was referring to in terms of all the scriptures, here now Jesus kind of gives us a whole, um, uh, like a technical list, because the Jews often divided the entire Old Testament, law, psalms, prophets. Law, psalms, prophets. That was the acceptable way of speaking of the major divisions of the Old Testament. And now Jesus is referring to each division of the Old Testament and saying that these things were written about me. Um, It's also a redemptive historical hermeneutic. Why do I say that? Because notice the language of fulfillment in verse 44. The Moses, prophets, Psalms must be fulfilled. You understand, in the New Testament, what happens is that in the New Testament, we really arrive at a new era of fulfillment language, where the New Testament is filled with language of fulfillment, that what has come in the life and in the ministry of Jesus is the dispensation of fulfillment, we can say. Uh, Dispensationalists would like that language, but, you know, all I'm saying is that it's that period of time where things are now going to be fulfilled, right? Um, I think I've pointed this out to you before. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke begins by saying that he gave a detailed account, right, about the things that were accomplished among us, but the word that he uses there for accomplished, you can look it up in your Bible. Maybe some of you guys' translation says this, but it's not just that they were accomplished among us, but the actual Greek word there is a word that you can translate as fulfilled. The things that were... And anybody's translation say that, by the way? Luke 1.1? 1, 1? No? What's wrong with these translations? <laughs> Thankfully, we have the Bible, right? So plerao is a word that means to fulfill. Uh, but just shows that that's what's, that's what's come uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, this hermeneutic comes from the illuminating work of Christ. That's right. Because look at the text back in 24, uh, I think what it is, it's 45. It says, He, that is Christ, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you guys this, because this is some controversial territory here. Okay. Um, because it deals with the issue of inspiration, right? That, that this is, I, I think what's happening here is the work, a supernatural work of illumination that was taking place in the apostles, that they were for the first time in a very miraculous fashion, spiritual fashion, their eyes were being opened in a, for the first time uh, to this hermeneutic of Christ and all the scriptures, and, and, and God was... Christ was illuminating their minds to these things. So, so by extension, how much of that applies to us? That's what I want to know from you guys. <laughs> anyone? Anyone? I would say it applies to us. Very much so? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Any limitations maybe to what happened to them versus what, what can happen with us? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they being many of them, or all of them with direct contact apostles, mm-hmm. 
and they they're the ones that are authoring New Testament writings. I don't think that we have those abilities. Right. So maybe their inspir- their illumination had something to do with their ability to write inspiration or write in inspired scripture, something like that, right? I don't think that even though we're giving great light, great wisdom, great insight into the word of God, that when we then take the theology of what we're learning and then we then go back and teach it, we're not teaching inspired doctrine. <laughs> you know, So just making that distinction. But certainly, certainly, I think the principle here is that when you, I know for me, I can just I can just bear witness to myself that when I really started studying a Christ-centered hermeneutic, like I tell you, like the scriptures opened up to me in a way that I have never, you know, and the first, the first guy to really do this to me was Edmund Clowney. Edmund Clowney was the first president of Westminster Seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary. And his book, The Unfolding Mystery, was the first time, and I had read that book, I don't know how many years ago, but... Uh, when I started reading that book, I thought, wow, like, where have I been? <laughs> like, what, how in the world have I missed this? You know, like, it's it's one thing because it's like, I know the scriptures, you know, this, they testify about me. It's written in the scriptures. Uh, the prophet says, as the scripture says. And I see all that. But when you really begin to see it from a redemptive historical progression, and you start understanding that yeah, it's not just direct prophecies in the Bible that Jesus is talking about. I think it's the whole theology of the Bible, the protology of the Bible, the primeval history of the Bible, the patriarchal history of the Bible, the Davidic history of the Bible, the prophetic history of the Bible. All of it is Christological. Um, uh, Some have argued, and there's one guy who has made this argument, um, John Salehammer. And what, what he argues is that, for example, the Pentateuch. And I've read this to you guys before, but I'll just, I'll just read it again because I, um, I, I like the way that it words this. But one thing that he said is like the entire law of Moses, you know, Genesis to Deuteronomy, is written when it was written and when it was revealed and when it was given from a distinctly messianic perspective. In other words, the law is hardwired for Jesus. <laughs> from the beginning, not that they came back one day after the fact. They came back and said, "Oh, you know what? I think it'd be I think we can fit him here and we can fit him there." <laughs> no. It's that what Jesus is revealing and what the apostles finally came to the conclusion was is that the law contains this Christology from what's known a per se reading of Scripture. In other words, intrinsically, inherently, from the beginning, originally. This is the intent. This is how God designed it. This is how he wrote it. Um, oh, okay, so Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. Maybe, maybe a little clue that Moses wrote this um, how much did Moses know? I don't think it's. I don't think we can debate that too much. But I, I don't know how much we'll ever know. But certainly, what I think about when I read this is Christ. It says, "Now Joshua the son of Nun 
was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel uh, listened to him and did and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, what does that remind you of, right? The face-to-face language in the Bible finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is at the side of the Father, He has declared Him, right? And then also, where in Deuteronomy is the... Where in Deuteronomy... Because here in verse 10, we're given the language of expectation, anticipation. But where in Deuteronomy is a prophet promised that would come, like it says right here, like Moses? Deuteronomy 18. 18. Do you have the verse there? (laughs) You just have it in your mind, right? You have it there? Read it. Deuteronomy 18 18 says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Like you. And then Deuteronomy ends, and here's the end of the law. The law ends right here in Deuteronomy. And how does it end? It ends with the people of Israel groping for the prophet that's going to be like Moses. And then that theology right there of a prophet who's going to be like Moses, that theology just kind of hangs there for a long time. And then you read the Gospel of John. John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan. The Pharisees come out, and what do they ask him? Are you the prophet? This is the way God designed his word. Well, who cares? They're pagans. I mean, we're... (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. You're right. They, they try to find Muhammad anyway. Which is funny because then you'd say, oh, so then are you saying the Bible's reliable? Yeah. This is our revelation. You know, leave it alone. You know? <laughs> Get your own, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's it, guys. I want to be a good boy and end at least five minutes early. And uh, so um, we, didn't, we didn't really hit... Oh, well, last thing, uh, last thing for, for Luke uh, 24, and, I just, and then I'll leave it at that, okay? Um, and that is that this Christocentric hermeneutic is also evangelical and it is also covenantal. Why do I say that? Because notice, back to uh, Luke 24, 30, uh, uh, 24, 46. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that, watch this, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in the name uh, in his name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, now, so you have the language of proclamation, right? So that's the miss, missiological, evangelistic aspect of the church. And then you have the covenantal phrase, all the nations. Where does all the nations originate from? Genesis, Genesis what? In you, all the nations will be blessed. Well, here we see 
that once we understand that Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day, that that message is now to be proclaimed through the gospel, through the church, and that the, 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 the covenant with Abraham in this way is going to be fulfilled so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. That's it. I had to throw that in there. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, not throw that in there. So God bless you. Let's go to worship. If you have any other questions or questions about today's study, write them down, jot them down, bring them next week, bring them the subsequent weeks, and uh, let's discuss them here. Okay? God bless you. Thanks, Emilio. You're welcome, brother.